I'm Shelley Schlender for How on Earth. Up next is an extended interview with University of California San Diego scientist Ajith Verki, talking about his team's new mouse study that indicates that a sugar in red meat called sialic acid can trigger inflammation when fed to mice. This sugar is intriguing because it's a molecule that two million years ago our human bodies made on their own. It differs from the human body's current sialic acid by just one atom of oxygen. Yet the mouse studies indicate that might be enough to cause an immune system reaction in the lab mice. More research and human studies will be needed to determine whether or not a similar reaction occurs in some susceptible humans. Now here's Ajith Verki. Yeah, I think in a broad sense, if you talk about glycans, which is kind of the word we use, you know, when you use the word sugar, you tend to get confused. You think about tablespoon sugar and, you know, diabetes and things like that. So sugar is more of a general term for carbohydrate, which is a more general term for the sugar chains, another way to think about it, glycans. So another way to think about it is the surface of a cell in your body is not like the planet Mars, it's like the planet Earth. Right, it's just covered with stuff, uh, and those are all sugars, chains of various kinds. Yes, it's not just a round, smooth ball. A cell is not just a round, smooth ball. It's fuzzy. Very fuzzy, and that fuzziness, most of it has not been studied very much. Well, it's hard to study because it's hard to see it. It's hard to tint it so that you can look at it or analyze it. It's very delicate. Right. Yeah, it's much harder than the other molecules, which why it's kind of got left behind in the molecular biology revolution. And yet it causes a lot of problems when it's not working right. Our joints are made out of these glycoproteins, our connective tissue, the little bags that hold all of our organs. The linings of our arteries have glycoproteins in them. We're fuzzy all over. Right, yeah, that's true. It's involved in almost every biological process. Now, you study a lot of different glycoproteins, and you also are studying ones that somehow leak through the gut and may cause problems once they're in the circulatory system. Yeah, so basically, uh, we study a class of glycans or sugars called sialic acids, and these are present uh, on all cells in your body. And this particular story comes up because one particular sialic acid is missing in us humans. When you say we are missing it, you don't mean that we're deficient in this. See, when I say deficient, I think of something like vitamin C. Ah, a chimpanzee has this molecule and we don't. And so it's, it's not that our health suffers because we don't have this. It's just that we don't seem to need it. Well, no, some about two million years ago in our evolution, we lost this molecule. It caused a lot of problems, and we've studied a lot of those issues, good and bad consequences. But now two million years later, here we are without this molecule. And we seem to have adapted, and we seem to be alive and walking on the Earth. Yeah, right. Okay, so this is a special molecule that... Other animals seem to make, but we humans don't. Not all animals. For example, birds and reptiles don't make it, uh, and some other mammals may not. But the common mammals that we eat, basically, you know, uh, sheep and cows and pigs and so on, they make a lot of it. Red meat animals make a lot of this. A lot of this. Whereas fish has very little. Chicken, poultry, and turkey have none, essentially, and plants have none of it. 
So one of the things we did in the study was to really extensively look at foods. We had done it before in the past. We just did a much more extensive study and showed that essentially the bulk of what you're seeing is mostly in red meat. There's a little bit in milk, a little bit in cheese, a little bit in of all places caviar, but uh, uh, but uh, the bulk of it, as far as we can tell from what we've looked at, is primarily in lamb, pork, and beef. And the other thing we did was to show that uh, cooking and uh, grilling and uh, you know treatments of various kinds, boiling, didn't make any difference. You can't cook it out of it. It's always there. You can't, you can't cook it out, and it's also in a form that is capable of being absorbed into your body, uh, which is. We use the term sometimes bioavailable. It means that it's available to your body. Well, when we think of bioavailable, most people think of something that they want in their bodies. Right, right. This is something that's unfortunately bioavailable to you. And that's puzzling to me that this particular molecule makes it into our circulation because I thought our digestive tract was supposed to be like disassembling tinker toys right. and make everything so simple that you wouldn't have a marker like this that you could measure in the blood after somebody eats red meat. So the, the reason is that we have another version of the same molecule minus one oxygen atom. So this one is called NU5GC, or we sometimes call it GC for short. And there's another version that we have, which is called NU5AC, which differs by one oxygen atom. So this molecule is so similar to what we have it just sneaks in, basically. It's like a Trojan horse, you know, it just sneaks into our system. Because our system says, oh, this is one of us already. Well, it says, you know, hey, I've seen this molecule two million years ago. It's not so long ago in evolutionary times, right? It's just, it's just very much like me. So it just sneaks in. Yeah, so it's very unusual in that respect. Normally when you hear about reactions to food, you're talking about an allergic reaction to a peanut or some foreign thing, right? That's a reaction against a foreign molecule. Here you have, a, for the first time, a foreign molecule that sneaks into your cells and becomes part of you. Because it used to be part of you. Exactly. Two million years ago. So your biochemistry pathway says, oh, I've seen that molecule not so long ago. And so it sneaks into your body. And so it's a very strange first example of what we, we have this very complicated term, xeno-auto-antigen. So in other words, it it is... Foreign, but yet part of you. So xeno means that it's outside of us, like a xenophobia. Xeno is often used for other animals also. And then autoantibody is when the body starts attacking itself. Right. So, so normally autoantibodies in the body attacks itself. Here's a case where the antibodies are saying, hey, this is a foreign molecule, and they're right. In this case, they're right. They're, they're identifying the foreign antigen. But the problem is the foreign antigen has snuck into you and become part of you. One thing that was interesting about you finding this out is that you were able to track inflammatory markers that are higher if this molecule has snuck in. Right, right. So what we did was to, you know, it's already known that from older studies that people who eat lots of red meat have higher levels of inflammation. Now, I want to be precise in what I'm reporting, and you said it's known from all of the studies. However, I could point to people like Darius Mosafarian from Harvard or Ron Krauss from, he's from one of the California places. And both of them have done studies of red meat where not all of their studies come back with it being high inflammatory. It depends on insulin. It depends on salt intake. So they're not as 
willing to say that red meat is a culprit. So when I say red meat is a culprit, it's not based on the inflammation alone. It's based on the overall epidemiology. If you take the nurses' health study or the Harvard physicians' follow-up study, or any of these long-term 20, 30-year studies of people with careful dietary intake, not some kind of short-term study, in all those studies, uh, the, the consistent finding is that Let's put it this way. There's never been a study showing that those who eat a lot of red meat live longer and are healthier. There have been numerous studies showing that those who eat red meat and you know don't live as long and tend to be not as healthy. And the broad finding tends to be in the context of eating a Western diet, meaning with sugar, bread. That is true. Red meat eaters tend to be also eating you know lots of excess carbohydrates and uh, you know, low-fiber diets and not enough fruits and vegetables and so on. So that's why in our study, we had to clean that all out of the way, right? Get rid of all those variables. So we narrowed it down to the single molecule that's found in red meat. So our mice are all getting the exact same diet. The only difference, and we have some mice that are getting a, we're actually getting that other sialic acid, the one, the AC that I said with one oxygen atom difference. So literally the difference in diet between our mice is one oxygen atom, right, basically. Everything else is exactly the same. There's no red meat involved here. This is a molecule that is found in red meat, right? So now when we do that, we've, you're absolutely right. When you look at big, complex epidemiological studies, there are so many variables. These, you know, people, that's why people get frustrated because... It's hard to tell them all apart, and you can always find one study that shows the opposite result in a particular population that's doing something different. And there's so many confounding factors. So what we've done is to make a mouse which has exactly the same deficiency, if you want to call it that, a missing molecule as humans. And we feed them either the human sialic acid or the non-human sialic acid. And we also take regular mice, you know, that shouldn't care about this, and they don't seem to react to it. And then we cause antibody formation, just like in humans. So we have something like eight or 10 control groups. And only in that one group of mice where you have both the foreign molecule going in and the antibodies being formed, in that combination, you get a five-fold increase in cancer. And in this case, in the mouse, it's in the liver where they tend to get cancer. So this is the first time we can say that uh, this one single oxygen atom difference can cause inflammation and cancer. And you pointed out that there's been speculation that it's the high iron content in red meat that might be the problem. That's been another another theory that's out there, which is uh, has, has some partial proof. Uh, but uh, I don't think there's a study that's... I'm, I have to be careful. I'm not sure how carefully they've studied the... Uh, it's the heme iron, you know. The iron in red meat is a very special kind of iron, unlike the iron in spinach or something like that. And by the way, that's why iron is so good for young, uh, you know, women of childbearing age, right? The one theory that I don't subscribe to is the one claiming that it's because of grilling, you know, that grilling produces carcinogens. But the problem there with I have with that theory is that fish and poultry, when grilled, generate the same carcinogens. But in all the studies, you can separate out the red meat from the fish and poultry in terms of the risk. It's very clear. Well, this is fascinating that you have such a pristinely analyzed study that 
shows in mice this causes a problem, and these were genetically programmed mice so that they are like us humans, where their bodies sort of remember that they had this, should I call it a sugar protein or should I call it? Uh, no, call it a glycan. Okay, just a sugar. Uh, yeah, I can call it a sugar. It's kind of a sugar, yeah. Okay. Now, do you know about Lauren Cordain and his research into three-way molecular mimicry and leaky gut? You know, that name sounds familiar. In fact, one of my postdocs is on the paper is reminding me about his work, but I don't recall the details. He's at Colorado State University. He's the founder of the paleo diet movement. Oh, right. The paleo diet. Yes, yes. He was one of the first people 20 years ago to start hypothesizing that intestinal permeability could lead some things to leak into the bloodstream at low-grade levels that the body isn't comfortable having in there, which would cause inflammatory reactions, and the inflammatory reactions would be more problematic when what the body was fighting was more similar to its own host tissue. Mm -hmm. And that's where his term three-way molecular mimicry comes from, that that you know if, if it's the wrong set of things that comes into the body, and the body starts saying, oh, gosh, I have to fight this, then the body can start fighting its own tissue as well. Sound familiar? Right. Yeah, I guess so. It's, it's, uh, it's a much broader theory. Yeah. Yeah, it's a broader theory. It's, it's along the lines of what you're describing here. Yeah. And the whole concept of leaky gut. The thing that surprises me with what you're saying with this, with this perspective is that uh, this particular molecule is one that the body lets through without any problem, but then once it's in the immune system's reach, the immune system goes, oh dear, what is this? Who is this? Yeah, exactly. So it's a very unusual situation. It doesn't cause any problems in the intestine. It doesn't affect the gut. It just comes on right on in, uh, looking like uh, very similar to your own uh, body, and then sneaks into your cells. And then as you're absolutely right, then the immune system which has already seen it before, probably in childhood or something. Um, actually, we have evidence that in the first few years of life, this, these antibodies turn on. So, but proving this in humans is a, is a whole different ballgame because you've got so many variables, right? And isn't that always the case? Yeah, I know. It's very hard. In Lauren Cordain's research, as an example, he believes that salt intake, when it's high, in combination with meats can cause some different reactions that are less good than if it's just meat, as an example. Um, Darius Mosafarian's research out of Harvard seemed to indicate that, too, that if you divide it out, the people who were eating processed meats like lunch meats and sausages and bacon from people who just ate a steak, then generally they had less of a problem in terms of their mortality and their longevity and Cordain thinks that this may have something to do with how cells uh, keep their potassium, magnesium, calcium, sodium balance. When, and, and if that gets messed up, then a lot of other things go south. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Could some of these other variables that are in there? Yeah. So, again, I'm not an epidemiologist, so I'd be careful. But in what I've read, suddenly processed meats are more of a culprit than regular red meat. So, in other words... You know, I, I, uh, my own simplistic view is that red meat has a primary issue that's causing more inflammation and progression of disease. But uh, that once you add processed meat, you're adding, you're adding more things like salt and other things. And I can certainly 
you know, when I when I read about it, I come across that too. That processed meats tend to really stand out as being the even worse culprits. And Cordain would also say that if someone has high insulin levels, then the way that uh, nutrients such as salt get driven into the cell is at a much higher rate. And I'm wondering whether there could be a difference between uh, a person eating red meat without those influences and a person who eats it American diet style with high insulin levels and high salt and high sugar. Right. No, no. And, and also, I think everybody agrees that hyperinsulinemia and obesity and these related metabolic problems are associated with increased risk of inflammation and heart attacks and cancer and so on, right? So it's all part of a package, really. Given your name and your lovely accent, are, are you from a country where a lot of people are vegetarians? I'm from India, but I'm actually born and raised as a Orthodox uh, Eastern Christian. So in my society, people ate every kind of meat. And I did growing up. Uh, so now I've, I, I don't eat red meat, I eat poultry and fish. I wonder about whether somebody, if they have some aches and pains or high inflammation, whether if they simply check for this marker, would that be informative to them? We don't want to go around scaring everybody saying, stop eating your red meat. I mean, that's crazy. You know, it's part of society. On the other hand, uh, we'd like to identify those people that are at risk. So if we could find out, maybe there's a small subset of people that have a certain marker that says, you're the one that needs to you know, cut back. That would be the ideal thing to find out. And right now, unfortunately, we don't have a, a clean marker that we can tell you, you know, what your risk is. My mom has a friend who has always told her that if she eats red meat, her joints swell up almost right away. It could be. Yeah, this is interesting that in people with rheumatoid arthritis will come into their physicians. You know, I'm, I'm a physician by training also. So uh, physicians tell you the stories about how people with rheumatoid arthritis come in and say, Doc, I changed my diet, I cut out all the red meat, and I feel much better. Now, when they actually tried to study that systematically, they did find some effect of vegetarianism, but they didn't do it so systematically that you could tell for sure. And conversely, there are people who, if they eat dairy, that's when their joints flare up, or if they eat grains, or if they eat beans. But this general concept that if you want to try to figure out a food that's bothering you, maybe there's a way to check an antibody for this. Right. So we have antibodies against GC, this non-human molecule that we can measure, but it's a very complicated set of antibodies, not an easy, you know, quick check uh, dipstick type of thing. So we're trying to simplify that, that assay. But here's another problem. I couldn't tell you right now how long after you stop eating red meat does this molecule go away, uh, how long does it last in your body, etc., etc. Well, we know from celiac patients that the antibody against the gluten that starts to attack the rest of the body tends to stay in the body at a pretty high level for several, several weeks before it will settle down again. So that's one example. You know, you could have all the antibodies, it still wouldn't matter as long as you can get rid of this molecule, right? Because then it has nothing to fight and so the soldiers go home. Exactly. So what we are trying to do is come up with, we want to try and come up with a solution for the problem, you know. And uh, 
if you think of the possible solutions, one is to get everybody to stop eating red meat. That's not going to happen. Certainly would help the planet and the environment if you could cut back a bit on red meat consumption, but it's not going to disappear from the you know, menus by any means. So forget that. Uh, the second would, would be to have a genetically modified, uh, you know, livestock. Sounds theoretically good, but practically very difficult to accomplish. And who knows, you know, that may cause some new problems. But, and of course, there are many people who wouldn't touch genetically modified food, even if they didn't know one way or the other. So that's out. So the third possibility is to find something that will block the uptake. We're looking into that. We have some potential candidates, but that's not very practical. You're not going to take a salt shaker along every time you go out to have a steak, right? A special molecule. So the final one would be to flush it out of your system. And that's what we're hoping to achieve, but we haven't got there yet. We have some preliminary evidence for that. How would you flush out this one that's one oxygen molecule different without flushing out the glycan that the body needs? The good guy is made, made in your own body in large amounts. So it doesn't get flushed out. It's made by you. Okay, and you, and you think that there might be a way to flush out the... No, no, in fact, we've done it in cells. and We're trying, to, trying it in mice right now. But we haven't yet got the answer whether it'll work in the whole body or not. All right, so you're not as inclined to believe that a fifth option would be for people to limit intake of other foods that tend to aggravate what this might do, for instance, if reducing salt consumption. Oh, no, no, you know? certainly. If you, can, if you can increase your consumption of fruits and, uh, you know, various kinds of non, non-starchy vegetables and uh, so on and uh, reduce intake of, you know, refined carbohydrates and re- reduce salt and so on, those will all help you for sure. You know? And then if you do that, you might be able to eat as much red meat as you want. Oh, it's possible. We don't know. Uh, that's, so this is where these long-term studies like the nurses' health study and all that might help. But they're murky. I mean, you had this mouse study where you zeroed in on a very specific diet and a very specific thing, and the nurses, who knows what they really ate? Well, the good thing about the nurses' health study specifically is that, uh, you know, they first started a physician's health study, which was not so reliable. Then they realized that nurses were much more reliable than physicians, apparently. And they found that uh, they would contact the nurses, I think, every six months for the last 30 years or something, get blood samples from them, get dietary histories, etc. So that's about as close as you can come. That's pretty it's, good. But it's still not anywhere near the accuracy of what you can do with a mouse study, obviously. So, What do you think will happen when we discover that chicken has some molecules that are like this too, and eggs do, and uh, fish does, that everything that we eat has a little bit of something in it that doesn't really fit with our bodies. Well, so this particular molecule is missing in poultry and eggs and hardly any in fish. This concept that a foreign molecule might become part of you is is a potential uh, problem uh, is, is a, you know, potential thing to research now. So we brought up this idea, you know, but that may be true of plants too, right? We don't know. Maybe foreign molecules sneak into your system and become part of you and raise an immune response. So it's, it's a different way of thinking about uh, immunity against dietary antigens. So it's, it's a completely new concept. It's a cool concept. I am, again, wondering how 
new it is. This is a very sp- specific and unique example, the one that you have. But last time I saw Lauren Cordain and interviewed him, he told me the sad story of how WGA, they're pretty sure, makes it into the immune, uh, into the body. Weed germ, yeah, that's true. Yeah, so, the, so there you have a foreign molecule that gets into you and binds to something in you. That's a different story, but also an important story, potentially, yeah. Oh, so that's different from what, so that's one where the foreign body binds to you and the immune system starts attacking it because it's bound. Right, right. So whereas in this case, the molecule gets processed into a small size, sneaks inside your cells, looks like your own biochemistry and comes out on your surface, you know. Okay, so it's actually inside the cell, it gets incorporated into the glycoproteins. Glycoproteins, when they come to the surface. So it's a very strange, uh, unexpected mechanism. So, but it may be the tip of the iceberg. You could be right, but we don't know yet. Fascinating research. Now, do you, do you have, are you part of the group that wants to profit from creating an assay that would help identify this molecule? Well, you know, we, uh, we started a company, my wife and I, who did this research to help to try and research these things. But the company is now doing other things, Cyamab Therapeutics, but they're interested in this. And uh, I'm not looking to profit at all, although I certainly do have, you know, founding shares or whatever in that company if they do well. Uh, but I'm more interested in trying to figure out a solution that's going to work, and it's a tough problem, you know. Isn't life full of interesting puzzles? Yeah, right. <laughs> Shelley Schlender. Our guest has been Ajith Verki of the University of California, San Diego. His research has been published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences the week of January 1st, 2015. Find out more at howonearthradio.org.